Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guests will be Bill White, who is the author of Slaying the Dragon. He's back with us again. We're going to talk about the latter part of his book this time. And then we will have Stephen Hayes, Dr. Stephen Hayes, who is the creator of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy and the author of Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb here for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a lay-led, free-of-charge support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. For more information, go to our website, hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest tonight is uh, Bill White, and we're going to bring him right on. How are you doing tonight, Bill? Oh, just fine, Ken. It's good to be talking with you again. Well, it's good to have you back. I want to talk about the latter part of your book, particularly the Section 7, the last section of the book. Mm -hmm. Sure. It covers a lot of growth and change, and it even covers some criticism of the treatment and then the institution of you know, some ethical standards and Mm -hmm. uh, best practices. So how did it come about in, uh, you know, the early 1960s or late 1950s? There were only a few treatment uh, centers in the United States. Hazelden was around. There were a couple of others, very few scattered. Then by the 1980s, we saw treatment everywhere. How did this come about? You know, the last time we talked, Ken, we talked about uh, the collapse of 19th century treatment and and, uh, virtually the disintegration of treatment and mutual aid uh, in the early decades of the 20th century. And then we sort of saw a rebound um, beginning with uh, the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous in the mid-1930s. And then in the 1940s, um, Marty Mann, one of the early women who'd gotten sober in AA, um, had this sort of vision of a recovery advocacy movement that would sort of alter how America understood alcoholism. And, and she launched that within the framework of the National Committee on Alcohol Education, which came to be NCA and now NCADD in, at the current time. But but the ad, she basically organized advocates from around the country, a mix of professionals and a lot of people and families in recovery to sort of launch this movement, and that movement contained both sort of public education, uh, trying to sort of shift an understanding of of, of alcoholism from a, a moral failure to one of a medical disorder that deserved medical treatment, and, and really challenge local communities to begin to open detox centers and uh, post re, you know post detox rehabilitation centers. But the problem with that was that there really we didn't really have replicable treatment models at that point. So before we could get the explosive growth of the 70s, we had to get something that could be replicated in communities across the country. And that came in a couple of three ways, major ways. Uh, one was the emergence of an outpatient alcoholism clinic model uh, that came out of Yale in the 1940s and 1950s which uh, established some credibility, was a model that could be replicated in, the, in, in sort of the local communities that NCA was working with. And then we had the, the Minnesota model, the Hazleton Pioneer House, Wilmer State Hospital model of the late 1940s and early 1950s that had begun to, to get some traction and also began to get replicated in general hospitals. Uh, particularly through the pioneering work of Nelson Bradley at Lutheran General Hospital in Chicago. And finally, there was this huge problem of public inebriates. And, and when it, what came out of Canada was a, was a unique social setting detox model uh, that really allowed uh, communities to divert uh, chronic inebriates from the drunk tanks and revolving doors of 30 and 90 day and one year jail sentences into these social setting detox programs and then linking them to these new treatment programs. So with with that foundation, those advocates through the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and it took about three decades 
uh, of advocacy, both in terms of state legislation and federal legislation, really set the stage for the Hughes Act in 1970 that created this unique federal-state-local partnership where federal money for the first time in significant amounts flowed to states and then to local communities to sort of organize and operate and staff and evaluate uh, these newly fledgling alcoholism treatment programs. And on the same time, we had an emerging separate field, which was the basically the what was called the drug abuse field of that era, which was a separate field from alcoholism until the 1980s. And we had there the emergence of um, therapeutic communities in the late 50s. We had the pioneering work of Dolan Nicewander and the emergence of methadone maintenance in the mid-1960s. And then we had these sort of outpatient uh, drug-free programs to respond to the youthful polydrug kind of crisis. So we had these two tracks and two advocacy and reform tracks that resulted in the creation of NIAAA at a federal level to sort of lead uh, addiction treatment in the United States and in in alcoholism research. And then we had NIDA uh, established shortly afterwards to do the same thing. And then within about a decade, we began to have the movement to merge those two very separate fields in 1970 into an integrated addiction treatment field. And then, of course, we began to see the explosive growth come with federal funding, and then we saw growth coming from the emergence of private insurance to pay for treatment, which really set the stage for the explosive growth. Okay, tell me a little bit more about uh, the insurers, and uh, how did they come to uh, accept this? this was something that they would pay insurance money for? Yeah, well, it was really, you know, it was really interesting because there were some really pioneer companies that had come to understand that they were losing some very valuable employees to alcoholism and began to um, really look around to seek, you know, alternative ways to, to respond to those employees. And interestingly enough, some of the earliest responses in the industries were individual uh, employees who had gotten sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and really turned themselves around dramatically. And suddenly employers began to call on these um, these sort of volunteer employees inside their companies to begin to work with other alcohol-impaired workers. And, and that really would almost set the stage for what will later become the employee assistance field. And as more of those employees were identified, they, there was this emerging need of how do we begin, begin to pay for their detoxification and treatment. So some of those leaders began to lobby for their insurance carriers and negotiate with their insurance carriers uh, coverage for the treatment of alcoholism. And, and people like James Kemper and others were just incredible pioneers, not only saying that it made moral sense in terms of sort of the the, the organizational family and keeping it healthy, but it made good business sense in terms of retaining valued employees, and it made good financial sense in terms of, of you know, recouping lost productivity and, and reducing safety threats in the workplace. Now, I went through treatment myself uh, two times. The one first time was in the mid-1990s and then early uh, about 2002 or 2001. Mm-hmm. Um and I remember when I was going through treatment, I met the people who were telling me, well, I've been through treatment 30 times. I've been through treatment 40 times. Is there a problem? I mean, there seemed to be a problem with some people, you know, that were doing revolving door rehab, as they say, and uh, just it was costing insurance companies a lot of money, I think. You know, it was. And, I, you know, I think one of the things that happened very early was that the uh, – as the, as the – Treatment programs began to become an industry, and as these fledgling, you know, alcoholism counselors became an organized profession, to to sort of elevate that field required, uh, it required standards and a replicable model. And one of the things that happened with that model was that it got organized pretty much around the model of a hospital. And so we, we sort of set up an emergency room model of addiction treatment in the United States that 
works very well for a broken arm, but tends not to work well, particularly for folks with the most severe and complex alcohol and drug problems. So, so what we've had is we have an acute care model that, by the way, works very well for people with less severe alcohol and drug problems, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. people that have got good recovery capital and resources internally and externally in their lives. But but for people with very severe alcohol and other drug problems, what's happened is we have recycled those individuals through. You know, right now, 64% of all people entering addiction treatment have already been there at least once before. And almost 20% of individuals coming into treatment have been there five or more times right now. So we are cycling, and and, and there's a growing sense that the treatment system that was designed to eliminate the revolving door of the drunk tanks in the jails and the emergency rooms in, in, in local general hospitals, that treatment system has now become a revolving door. And there are calls to really redesign addiction treatment or extend that design to do much more effective work with people with the most severe complex problems. So, so we're beginning to talk about the need to extend that acute care model to an approach of sustained recovery management. And I think that's a very exciting trend that we're seeing right now. Yeah, I remember seeing Dr. Phil plugging one of his shows on television, uh, which I don't normally watch because that's my addiction, but I happen to see this. And he was talking about a woman that had been to treatment four times and got worse each time, and he was going to give funds to send her to this. And it was the same type of treatment. I mean, yeah, not everyone, what I want to bring out is not everyone responds to a 12-step treatment if you're not responding this type, wouldn't it be a good idea to try and refer someone to a different type? Yeah, or any other treatment for that matter. It's, it's in other areas of medicine when we apply a treatment and the treatment doesn't work. Rarely do we blame the patient. We actually begin to look at alternative methods and approaches to treat the disorder. And in, in addiction treatment, we've had a tendency to blame the patient when they don't respond enforce them through the same treatment multiple times that has already not produced a recovery outcome. And it does seem that some people respond better to some treatments than others. Um, this is just my intuitive experience. Yeah, and that's not, you know, we, we have, there's, there's, there are these incredibly delicious, diverse pathways of recovery that are very viable for people, but you sort of got to match people to these to these pathways. I mean, we have people in in religious and spiritual and secular pathways of long term recovery. We have people in in uh, who've transformed their lives through drug free treatment and medication assisted treatment, and on and on in terms of methods. Um, but it, you know, I think probably any one modality that claims that it works universally for all people with severe alcohol and other drug problems is is sort of doomed to eventual therapeutic pessimism by forcing that treatment on people for whom it's not appropriate. Yeah, I personally grew up in a household that was very fundamentalist, religion based. Uh, there was no drinking of alcohol because mm-hmm. you would go to hell. Um, my parents thought that Catholics were going to go to hell because they worshipped idols in their churches because they had statues, you know, that that kind of extremism. And what I saw, you know, there are similarities to uh, AA there because AA came out of uh, the Oxford Group movement, which was a similar type of movement. To me, it was a total turnoff. I mean, I have many of my friends and colleagues who work in needle exchange that are AA members, and I totally respect their choice and it's working for them and good you know i don't want to argue with people that are succeeding but you know for me it was uh it was the worst way to approach it and i definitely needed a different way to approach it which i eventually found but it was very difficult yeah i think one of the things that we're seeing ken is in the in the recovery world we're seeing tremendous variations now within 12-step communities. We're seeing a a significant growth in the secular recovery communities in the United States. Groups like Smart Recovery and Life Ring Secular Recovery and Secular Organization for Sobriety and Women for Sobriety. But on the other end, we're also seeing the growth of these explicitly religious frameworks of recovery that cross the great religious face. 
Mm-hmm. In fact, it's very interesting because one of the most, the fastest growing recovery mutual aid group right now in the United States may well be Celebrate Recovery that's in more than mm-hmm. 10,000 churches right now. And in the same context in terms of treatment, what we're beginning to see is we used to have a thing that every treatment program sort of offered its, its single method of treatment. And now what we're moving to is more and more treatment programs are understanding they need to begin to each offer a, a menu of, of treatment modalities and recovery support services and then match and combine and sequence those uniquely to, to meet people's individual needs. And that's a, that's a pretty dramatic shift from the standpoint of you have to come and go through our program versus this program really has to come to understand you and what kind of things will work for you in terms of supporting you and your family in long-term recovery. Yes, when I talk to my colleagues today, who uh, many of them are in the mainstream uh, treatment field, and they're much more open to new ideas than, say, when I was going through treatment myself 10 years ago or 15 years ago. There was not a lot of talk then, but it seems like there's a great sea change underway where people are much more open now to new ideas than they were earlier. Yeah, I think so, and I and I think it's it's you know some people would attribute that to the fact that we've increased the level of education and clinical training of people working in addiction treatment. To some extent, that's that's true and an influence, but I think there's also we've reached a point where um, we're seeing more and more people in recovery beginning to sort of step forward and tell their stories. So we're beginning to see living proof of these very diverse pathways of recovery. And I think that's influencing not only the larger community's understanding, but also the addiction treatment field's understanding and what these recovery pathways are really like. Now, I wanted to address one other thing that was from my personal experience as a consumer. And uh, at one point, I requested my assessments that I had gotten. I had been assessed by... Hennepin County, I was basically indigent. I was unemployed. Mm-hmm. So um, and I, th- I think the indigent people often tend to get shoved around the most. That was an impression of mine. But I got my assessments, and I found out one of my assessors had filled in many answers to questions that I had never been asked. One question in particular was he filled in that I had a secret stash of alcohol you know, I lived alone in my own apartment. I wasn't hiding any alcohol from myself at the time. And I was just, you know, appalled that he would just make up answers that, you know, just that he thought were correct. I thought it was very arrogant, and I was very upset with that. Yeah, you know, I mean, that falls into an area, you know, is it a question of, of incompetence? Is it a question of of ethical breaches of someone um, who simply began to fabricate parts of paperwork to keep up with the growing demands and monitoring, you know, of the of the the amount of forms and notes that they were needing to fill in, and you know, in settings where supervision is very weak, those kind of ethical breaches could and, and in fact did occur, and and in some cases still occur today, even even with the with the best you know with some elevation in the in the supervision practices. I think the difference is is that um, I, I came. I started working in the tr- in the treatment field in 1969, and if I think of the 60s and the 70s, um, was really a kind of frontier era with with really without not only professional standards but really without ethical standards to speak of in any significant way, and and those began to really emerge, you know, in the 1980s through the professionalization of the field. And also through um, the organization of the profession in terms of ethics committees that began to to actually have mechanisms where where clients and patients in different settings could could file ethical complaints around exactly the kind of situation that you're referring to and have those complaints investigated and once that began to occur, I think there was some elevation of ethical conduct in the field. Uh, but to be perfectly frank, you know, that that work in terms of elevating ethical practice continues and, and needs to, to continue to be elevated. Well, I do think it's it's improving. Um, uh, when I Once again, when I talk to my colleagues, I'm in contact with my colleagues a lot online. We talk in groups like on LinkedIn a lot and discuss things. And I, 
I see people with a great deal of ethical concerns, and they're very concerned about treating their clients well. So I think that, mm-hmm. you know, many people do this, and I think it's a, it's many of the professionals practicing today are much more careful about ethical standards than they might have been, you know, earlier in the more pioneer days or in the past. I think it's... Yes, I, I, I would agree with that. But uh, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, how these ethical standards... Uh, grew and got put into place and about the, the professional organizations that uh, organized them? Yeah, if you look at the the early organization, first of alcoholism counselors and then addiction counselors and sort of those associations beginning to get merged in most states and then the emergence of national structures like NADAC, uh, what you began to have was two things. From the profession itself, you began to have these uh, these professional associations develop ethical standards for addiction counseling. And then the second thing you began to have was you began to have states license and accredit programs and private entities uh, like the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations uh, and the Council on Accreditation Facilities uh, have standards for, for, for treatment facilities to be able to be accredited and therefore to receive reimbursement. They began to build in some standards related to education, training, supervision, uh, and also ethical standards within individual treatment programs. And so that, so, so it, 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 the, the question of, you know, if I look at a behavior, is this a behavior that's never okay for me to do as an addiction counselor? Uh, is always okay or sometimes okay but sometimes not okay. Those kind of definitions really didn't exist until this kind of standards development work occurred through the 1980s and 1990s. And and there were some pioneers in that. Um, LeClaire Bissell and James Royce did an early book on ethics for addiction professionals, kind of an early introductory the, probably the first book we had in the in the addictions field specifically on ethics for addiction counselors, and then um, you know within the next decade, uh, Renee Popovitz and myself worked on a ethical casebook uh, for addiction counselors, and since then we've had lots of work in terms of uh, lots of ethical visibility uh, within the professional journals and some additional work again trying to sort of create help with this ethical decision-making in the field. Okay. You had a chapter in the book about Parkside, and that was a rapid growth and then a rapid collapse. And can you summarize that chapter a little bit for me? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a fascinating story, but also a very difficult one to summarize. Uh, Parkside <clears throat> came out of the Minnesota model in Hazleton. Uh, some of the key players uh, came from Wilmer State Hospital, came to a a suburban Chicago hospital and began to integrate the Minnesota model into this general hospital, Lutheran General Hospital in Park Ridge outside of Chicago. And it developed uh, quite a reputation, national and international reputation, as as a very excellent treatment center. And as a result of that, began to be replicated in, in multiple places. And as that, as that began to occur, some of the leaders at Parkside said, we really need to find ways to spread this around the United States and the world. So they created an entity called Parkside uh, Medical Ser- uh, Med- Management Services and then Parkside Medical Services. And, and Parkside would go on through the 1980s to become the largest provider of addiction treatment in the United States. And, and just continued on this explosive growth of replicating itself and buying up programs and sort of imprinting the Parkside model. And, and that continued until the late 1890s. Then you begin to see the early cracks in the Parkside system, financial cracks in terms of its growing uh, debt burden. As, as aggressive managed care spread in the United States, you began to see a reduction in census in many of the Parkside units. And by the time we get into the 1992 and 1993 area, we have the virtual collapse of the largest addiction treatment provider in the United States. It's, it's an amazing story of the rise and fall. And in some ways, 
if you said if there's a treatment system that should have survived that period, you know, many people would say it should have been Parkside in terms of deep historical roots, um, leaders with great reputations and integrity, and yet there were some fundamental flaws in, in what they did. And um, when I interviewed all of the Parkside staff, uh, I got wildly different interpretations of what led to the fall and, and, and total collapse in the end of Parkside. Uh, and they, they, they ranged from detailed discussions of flawed businesses, business strategies, uh, of flawed financing strategies in particular in terms of bad debt that, that came to virtually financially overwhelm the, the corporation. But I also got um, a lot of people that felt like that somewhere along the line that Parkside had sort of lost its soul that it had kind of become disconnected from its founding values, that there were, there were key people in leadership roles that became more concerned about profit than the kind of progress their individual patients were making. So um, it's one of those that, that I, we're still probably even too close uh, historically to definitively answer, you know, what led to the collapse of this. But we can say there were lots of things. And it wasn't just Parkside. There were, uh, this was a period of time where we had a large number of private programs closing in the United States or dramatically, uh, you know, reducing their size and, and levels of operation. Okay, we have about five minutes left before we bring our next guest on who's waiting in the wings here. Um, I wanted to address one last issue. We talked earlier about the revolving door rehab and, uh, you know, putting people through treatment 30, 40 times for the same treatment was very expensive for the insurance companies. Then now we come to today and so much of the funding is cut to the bone. Now we have the the opposite problem. Uh, There's no treatment on demand. There's many people that are seeking treatment that, that can't seem to find any funding for it. They can't get their insurance to pay for it. What's our next step now that uh, that we can take to uh, try? Yeah, and- well, the you know the acute care model that we described has become more and more acute. The, the the time that people are in professionally directed treatment is getting briefer and briefer. And as I mentioned, for some people, that that brevity of professional intervention will work just fine for them. But for for those people with much more severe and much more complex problems, I think the answer is going to lie not in changing what we do within an acute care model, but really going beyond that model where we provide the kind of acute biopsychosocial stabilization, but then we move towards a system not of high intensity, but of long duration, where we begin to build in these longer-term processes of recovery checkups, uh, stage-appropriate recovery education, peer-based recovery support services, and when we need it as a result of these checkups, early reintervention before this person is totally crashed and burned again, uh, to restabilize them and move them back in back into into a period of stable recovery, and with the focus really being not on how do we get this person to initiate recovery because they've done that multiple times, but how do we now help this person and family sustain recovery over the long period of time? <coughs> Well, I'm going to thank you, Bill, for being our guest tonight. As always, it's fascinating. Slaying Good. The Dragon, Ken, it's a pleasure. Slaying the Dragon is the name of the book. It's a very comprehensive history of addiction treatment in America. It's the first place to go to if you're interested in this topic. And so thank you very much for being with us tonight. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Ken. Okay, I'm going to bring on our next guest now. Hello, Stephen. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, let me do a little introduction for you. This is uh, Dr. Stephen Hayes, Ph.D., who is the creator of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, also known as ACT, and he is the author of Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. And welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tell me a little bit about uh, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, I was uh, reading your book. You say uh, it starts from uh, relational frames. Yeah, acceptance and commitment therapy is one of the modern forms of CBT that focuses on acceptance and mindfulness processes and commitment behavior change processes, and it was one of the earliest. So 
it's in there with uh, dialectical behavior therapy or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or metacognitive therapy. And uh, what the message that the ACT brings to the table, and I'll focus particularly on the substance use area where it does have uh, a fair amount of uh, evidence in support of it, is that um, part of what it is uh, toxic but natural for people is to treat their own thoughts, feelings, memories, and bodily sensations as something that have to be uh, put into an orderly fashion. Bad things have to go away. You have to have only good things, just like you would if you were trying to arrange objects on your shelf. You'd want attractive things, nice things there, not ugly things. And that uh, it's a kind of a common sense and logical thing to do that you should try to do that with the world within, with your feelings, your memories, and your sensations. Unfortunately, addiction is one way to put things that look pretty nice on the shelf but don't wear very well. I mean, you can uh, feel good at the cost of your life, literally, if you uh, pursue that kind of uh, uh, vision that a a healthy life, a committed life, a valuable life, is one that feels good all the time. And it's just not real, uh, but yet the culture promotes it massively uh, Mm. through commercial interests and just by the what has happened in the fractionation of our society, the reduction of the importance of our spiritual or religious traditions, which were generally wiser. Some of the messages that come out of even some of our psychotherapy traditions are like that, that you, you know, anxiety is bad, depression is bad, urges are bad. Uh, and that what we try to do in an ACT perspective is help people to be more open and flexible, to be able to, you know, feel those feelings, but then be able to shift their attention towards what it is that they really value, what they want their life to be about, and link their behavior to that. So that kind of uh, one-two punch of greater openness and awareness on the one hand, but then greater focus on uh, values and committed action on the other is the the message inside ACT and the methods that uh, have been developed, it turns out, are quite helpful. They, you know, and they are reliable in the long run. They sometimes, in the short run, no. We've got evidence where you know ACT is actually not doing as well in the short run. But then some of the things that, unfortunately, are in even some of our treatment uh, programs for the addictions, and not just the addictions, but for behavioral health writ large. Some of those things actually rebound on people and. Uh, uh, we have a piece coming out uh, in the next little while, uh, uh, walking through people who are in inpatient uh, substance abuse treatment program, where we saw that, and, and we uh, actually are titling the article, article something like "Slow and Steady Wins the Race." That slow and steady process of walking through pain, walking through past places where you've disappointed yourself and let down others, kind of cleaning that up and focusing on your values, which frankly I think is in some of our 12-step traditions and and so ACT is very compatible with some of those traditions, but brings a kind of a Western science uh, and a more kind of analytical uh, approach to it. Well, I saw in your book you had a metaphor with struggling in quicksand, with people yeah. struggling with their thoughts. Can you expand on that metaphor for me a bit? Well, we use metaphors and exercises a lot because, in fact, people notice in the process of living that some of the things that your logical, analytical, problem-solving mode of mind tells you to do are actually not helpful. And uh, the metaphor there would be if you actually were caught in quicksand, any Boy Scout or Girl Scout would tell you you need to do the counterintuitive thing, which is to lay out flat on the surface uh, of the uh, of, of the mud there to avoid... Uh, sinking in, but if you're thinking, you know, I'm stuck in something and I have to get out, you know, the logical things most of us would do is we would try to move our legs and arms to get out. Unfortunately, as we do that, we shift our weight, we decrease the surface area, we sink in either even more deeply. And so people have experience with things that are paradoxical. I mean, your mind is not the only organ that you've got, and it's not the, you know, the font of all wisdom. And some of the things that our mind is telling us to do are exactly what has happened when people have uh, uh, settled into an addiction problem uh, to begin with. And so we try to get people in contact with, through metaphors, this larger uh, uh, set of uh, knowledge that you have that sometimes uh, trying to get out quickly only gets you in and that what you need to do is uh, do paradoxical things. Uh, and that, uh, 
you know, in the metaphor, the safe thing to do if you're caught in quicksand of laying out flat on the surface of it, the metaphor of that is just like when you're dealing with urges and when you're dealing with uh, emotions and thoughts that you don't like that you may be trying to control through an addiction. Part of what you're going to have to do, and we always tell people when they come in or neck treatment is, you know, as you enter into sobriety initially, you're going to feel worse. And at least if you kind of lay out and learn from it, you know, maximize your contact with it, not out of masochism, but out of an ability to really learn as to what is your history telling you. There's stuff in there that's valuable. Taking the time to feel what you feel and notice what your memories are doing and then shift your attention towards where you want to carry your life. And the metaphor of laying out flat on the surface something is a pretty good description of kind of what you need to do psychologically when you're trying to clean up uh, uh, a mass that's been created uh, by uh, addiction history and also face some of the original things which may have led to an addiction problem in the first place, which is uh, the difficulty of facing uh, pain and loss and disappointments and guilt and, and all the different kinds of things that people are trying to manage through substance. Well, we found that uh, many people uh, have an underlying issue, probably the majority have an underlying issue of uh, depression or anxiety or social phobia or something like that. And they're using, you know, the uh, substance to self-medicate that. Sure. I know our colleague Pat Denning says, you know, you don't take away the crutch until you provide some other coping mechanism. Don't take away the coping mechanism that's working, which is the drugs or alcohol, until you provide a new coping mechanism. And that's what we're that's what we're talking about, you know, with things like cognitive behavioral therapies or with ACT or with DBT. So that's um, I'm really interested in this as a as a coping mechanism that people can use. I know you talked a lot about suffering in the book. How does ACT approach suffering? We view suffering as the combination of pain plus an unwillingness to have pain. And pain is inevitable in, in, in life, but suffering is not. You know, we're finite, we're going to die, people are going to disappoint us, difficulties are going to happen, we're going to fail. Pain is inevitable. But suffering is what happens when you try to get rid of pain by doing things that actually only amplify pain. And there's no better example than substance use. But it's not just that. You mentioned some of the other problems, and as you know, there's an empirical cluster doesn't explain all of substance abuse, but there's an experience, uh, there's a cluster there empirically of anxiety, depression, substance abuse in the family history of individuals. Some of it may be even genetic in the sense that we're more prone to be able to associate negative things across time. And, you know, there's more of an invitation to use substances to manage that. Uh, and so some people come by into substance abuse in other ways, though you may come in entirely through initially through a, a social process where you're trying to be part of a group or something like that. But once you've developed an addiction, if you're not able to open up to and carry unpleasant feelings, you can't walk out of it because it feels pain, it feels painful physically. I mean, the, the urges and your, the bodily sensations that are involved in withdrawal and walking out of an addiction are themselves difficult. And so you, we need more psychological flexibility to be able to sit with pain and let pain stay at the size that it is as opposed to then reacting to it in all these kinds of unhealthy ways that actually only amplify it, make it more central, make it more the focus. And when you're dealing with addictions, begin to add other sources of pain like employment problems, letting your family down, health problems, things that occur inside the, a path of addiction that now only... Uh, you know, increase the number of challenges that are there to be faced. You know, life is difficult enough already without amplifying pain needlessly. And uh, so that's what we can do something about. We can't do something about uh, that kernel of pain because uh, death and loss and pain is part of life. And whoever said that it wasn't? Well, it turns out modern culture says that it isn't and tries to, you know, give a a smiley face button as an image of what's a happy life, and it's not real. Uh, I, I remember a few years ago watching a beer commercial. People were drinking beer, and suddenly their heads went pop, and they became a smiley face button. Mm -hmm. And you and think about this. Like, this is to sell beer, not to make people repulsed. But what a repulsive image. What a ridiculous image that is. 
that you too can become a plastic smiley face button. And of course, if you consume enough, you will. We know what we're talking about there, but why is that something that anybody would want to do? Well, because the culture is telling us that's what a happiness is. And it's a lie. It's not true. The wiser part of our culture has always known that's not true. But we're dealing right now in a pretty crass commercial culture that can become that stupid that it can actually sell beer with the images of smiley face buttons and people don't stop to notice that they've been had by a message that is very unwise and very superficial. Mm-hmm. Well, our culture also constantly tells us to be dissatisfied with what we have now, and, but you'll be happy as soon as you buy the next thing, but then exactly. you have to be dissatisfied with the new thing. Well, some of it, of course, is just commercial interests. We call them goods and services, but what are the goods and what are the services? And often they're things that are created out of this neurotic chase for happiness that will never give you peace of mind, it will never give you love, it will never give you values. What it gives you is the temporary jolt of the the new fix, uh, but then it goes away. Uh, And I think what people are trying to fix, it's interesting, you know, that we actually call drugs by the term a fix. A fix has multiple meanings, and it's right in there. You know, it's repair what's broken, so we'll get rid of pain and we'll have happiness, uh, and to hold in place. Like to fix it, don't let don't let it move. It's a fixed position. Well, what can't move? Well, let's not only get a happiness, but get it in a place where it's not going to move. That's not real. That's just not that. That is uh, an illusion. And the addiction, you know, promises you that, but it doesn't deliver that. And uh, I remember in our first act trial, we were dealing with severe substance use uh, with. Uh, people who were on methadone and still bouncing and using polysubstances so had to be using multiple substances despite the fact they were on methadone. And one of our early clients told the story of being so high that his daughter was being perpetrated on in the back bedroom and somehow that seemed okay because he felt so good. Well, you know, he's going to have to walk through the rest of his life with that memory. And it's painful. He cried when he talked about it. He loved his daughter. But, you know, that anti-life message, you know, feel-goodism can take you even to the point where you can betray your family and yourself. And, uh, you know, so having people turn and sort of open up to healthy amounts of pain, real pain, not because you're a masochist, but because it's part of a process of living a meaningful life and uh, having it be about something bigger than just the happy, happy, joy, joy, smiley, smiley face uh, buttons that the culture uses to sell products to us, uh, but uh, without actually delivering the, what the products are, are purported to deliver. So is the acceptance part of uh, ACT, is that about accepting pain, or is it more than that? It's more than that. I think we're accept we're accepting in the sense of taking what's offered. It turns out, you know, this is just one of the sick ironies that you see in the research literature. The more avoidant people are and the less accepting they are of pain, the less that they can experience joy. So it isn't just accepting pain, it's also accepting joy. What happens and everybody on the, listening to this knows about this because I'll give you an example that everybody has probably tasted. If you've been betrayed in relationships, let's say, what your logical mind will tell you is, I should never be so vulnerable again. Uh, well, the, the, later on, when you the, uh, uh, get into an early relationship and you see there's a potential here for something that's deep, meaningful, loving, part of you is like screaming, run away. It's it's somehow scary, and it's in our normal kind of cultural knowledge. The bigger you are, the harder you fall. And if you really want something, you're going to be disappointed. You know, you'll, if you just watch for it, you'll see it. Our culture kind of tells us even joy is a threat. Well, it's a threat in the sense that we do know that emotions come and go. And it, feeling joyful now will not be feeling joyful always. It's, it's not going to be fixed, you know, uh, but... Uh, when people, when we follow people who are highly experientially avoidant, meaning they're unwilling to feel 
thoughts, feelings, memories, bodily sensations that are difficult. If we do thought, if we do uh, experience sampling, we actually follow them over time with little, you know, personal digital assistants, you know, asking them how they're feeling. When joyful things happen, like somebody says something that's a compliment or invites you to a party or tells you how much they appreciate you, what happens is happiness comes up and then it dips quickly. And it's literally suppressed because it feels dangerous in the same way, to use the example I came to, that you feel there's something dangerous when you suddenly realize, uh-oh, I'm falling in love with this person and I'm only going to be hurt again. And I've made this promise to myself to never be so vulnerable again because it hurt so hard, so bad last time to be betrayed. But it turns out, if you're not willing to be vulnerable, you can't have intimate relationships. If you can't have the pain, you can't have the joy. And so acceptance is not this kind of dark message of, oh, you just have to tolerate it, give up, accept that it's not fatalism. It's acceptance in the original meaning of it in Latin, which is to receive the gift that's offered. It comes from the word to mean to receive a gift. And can we take the gift of the moment? And it will include lots of things. You know, there may be a thorn that comes with a rose, but you get the vitality and connection to others, the vitality of being with yourself and being in your life, caring about things. And failure is part of the process of trying to achieve disappointment is part of the process of caring and it's this rich soup it's not just like drinking sugar water it's it's mix you know it has a richness to it and a human life is like that so the acceptance has to do with taking what's offered in the sense of openness to your own processes and your own opportunities moment by moment as you walk through your day are there any exercises people can do to uh, work on acceptance yeah, I think if you, uh, and we have, you know, in the ACT uh, universe, there's about 60 books about, no, not all written by me, I'm not promoting them for that, for selfish reasons, as part of the tradition that's there. If you look, you'll see them. And there's probably about 25 self-help books. Uh, Get Out of Your Mind and Your Life is the one that I wrote, and I think it's a decent one, and it kind of walks through many of these different kinds of uh, exercises. And so, for example, if you're having uh, an urge, let's say, for dealing with addictions, taking the time to feel, where do you feel that in your body? To watch it rise and fall, to, you know, to to kind of look at it from multiple perspectives. Uh, if it were to have a color, what color would it have? If it were to have a shape, what shape would it be? To take different perspectives on it. If you were to write a letter to yourself from the future, if things had gone well and, and uh, you know, you're looking back at yourself suffering right now, what would you want to say to yourself about that? Uh, I, I often will, with clients will work with things where they have these deep fears and self-judgments to bring themselves in front of themselves as a child and have it said back to them out of a voice of a child. And things that we do to ourselves as adults, we would never do to kids. I mean, we will criticize, blame, slap ourselves around the face, call ourselves idiots. If you had a kid in front of you who was afraid or hurting, there's no way that you would even think to do that. So this attitude of self-compassion is inside this acceptance place of, is it okay to be me? Is it okay to feel what I feel? Can I start where I am? And what we tend to do, our logical mind says, no, you have to start somewhere else. Well, I don't know how to go from here to somewhere else. Here's where I am. And I, I've given you some images and just some tastes of exercises just in my answer as to how you would go kind of uh, beginning to cultivate a habit of acceptance so that uh, uh, you're a little more open, a little kinder, a little softer with yourself, even when things are difficult. Well, our colleague, the late Dr. Alan Marlette, uh, talked about urge surfing, which I think is similar to what you were just talking about. It was about sitting back and you know watching the urge rise and fall and pass, and that was a way to deal with urges instead of giving into them. I think it's very similar. It is very similar, and in fact, it's one of the fellow travelers. And you know, Alan was a personal friend, and uh, for many, many years, and uh, very much uh, you know mourn his uh, passing and. He brought so much uh, to the addictions area and uh, and some of his more recent work, especially as he really brought some of his own Buddhist uh, leanings and so forth into 
uh, not just conceptually, but also the techniques of um, mindfulness-based re- relapse prevention and so forth. Uh, I think what the ACT work uh, brings to it that uh, maybe amplifies it a little bit is we have a set of processes, each of which is empirically validated, uh, that we can focus on. And urge surfing, uh, I think, is an important piece, but the, the six processes we're trying to focus on from an ACT point of view is greater acceptance a little bit of distance between yourself and your thoughts, what we call diffusion. See thoughts in flight rather than just let them structure your world. More flexible perspective taking, being able to look at it from I here now, but also looking through the eyes of other people back and seeing it from multiple perspectives. More flexible uh, attention to the present moment. Digging down to your values. What did you put on hold? When you put life on hold, as you do inside an addiction, what did you really originally want? turns out a lot of the things we want are the flip side of what hurts us because in your values you find what you care about, and guess what? You get hurt where you care. So just like in that intimacy example I was using, what hurt about betrayals is that you wanted committed intimate relationships. Well, can we... Now that we're sort of more open to the pain, can we also focus on what was put aside, which is what do we really, really care about, what do we really want to be up to in our life, and then our committed action. You know, I think Alan's work is really deeply compatible with all of those things, uh, but ACT has some, maybe some uh, different methods and also some concepts that might be helpful. Uh, but it's part of the larger group of uh, acceptance and mindfulness-based therapies that are, uh, over the last 15 years, making a big impact on the evidence-based approaches to not just addiction, but all behavioral health uh, problems. Okay, can you expand a little bit on the commitment part of the ACT therapy? The commitment part is connecting with your values, connecting with what you really most deeply want. And by values, we don't just mean goals. We don't just need, we don't mean outcomes. This is not a promise to have an outcome. It's not a guarantee. We're talking about this quality of by choice. This is something that I hold dear. This is something that's meaningful to me that tells you right here now in the moment as a positive, not as something I'm trying to get away from, but something I move towards what is meaningful in my actions right now. And the commitment part is to take that leap that I am going to build patterns of living that are allow those values to be more and more and more in the moments on the planet that I have here. And so I'll give you an ex- example that we all know about. We, many, many of us have been through marital commitments. We even have rituals and vows that we say. And uh, often they're done in ways that are not really committed we haven't really connected with what are the relationship values that we want to have manifest there. We'll say things like, uh, you know, because I love you and because you're beautiful. Yeah, when, you know, the person might not be beautiful 10 years from now. Maybe the person's had an accident. Maybe they're irritating you. You know, but we're trying to dig down to those things that will guide you even when it's difficult and embrace them as this is my life path. Uh, and as a kind of leap of faith uh, in the original meaning of that term, the Latin word feed as the leap of self-fidelity, uh, that this is what I care about and my my uh, life moments are going to be spent in the service of this. And if that's being a loving person or making a contribution to others or if it's uh, appreciation of beauty or if it's, uh, uh, you know, creating more wholeness and uh, acceptance in the world and kindness in the world, whatever it is. Uh, let's have therapy be about that. And that's the only thing I know that will help a person walk through addiction because you've got the most successful technology known to manipulate your inside. And when you stop using, you're not going to immediately feel better. You're going to feel all of those things that you avoid in the first place. But it turns out if it's about something, that's a dignified walk. That's worth walking. And um, the committed uh, part is to essentially be true to yourself. You came here to do something. You came here that you, with things you care about. Let's let this therapy, but not just that, this 
your life path be about that? I find that to be very true. Um, you know, if you have something important in your life that you are committed to, you believe in, you know, sometimes you have to remember it from your past. But when you remember, you know, things that you were committed to, that's when you can start turning around and saying, you know, this <clears throat> drinking alcohol is not so important or, you know, this cocaine yeah. is not something I want in my life anymore. It just gets in the way of, you know, what's really me, what I really want. Exactly. Exactly, and that you know that's the the only thing. And you know, this is some of what's in some of our other tradition and motivational interviewing is so impactful. Why it opens up some of those places, and you know it, it gives us a connection to you know why do the hard things? It's, and then you know letting go of an addiction is hard, but it's about something bigger, and it's that's what dignifies this walk and and uh, makes it even possible that uh, the things we deeply care about. I. I was working with um, uh, a, stu- a study that uh, I mentioned that we have coming out with. Uh, it was actually focused on shame and working with folks in in inpatient facility. And I'm picturing a, a man who, uh, you know, said the only thing he wanted was for people not to mess with him. And he had tattoos all over him. He's wearing leathers, and he's just as tough as nails, talking about how he carries a gun everywhere he goes, etc. And, you know, we sort of dig through that, dig through that, and appeared it was only a six-hour group, so it's not like we're going, but we're just sort of backing up, watching these processes, connecting to what he values. He stands up in front of these eight folks in the room there and says what he really cares about is being a good parent. And he starts crying, and he talks about what his addiction has done in terms of how much he's let his daughter down. You know, inside there, addiction is not as important. Now, if you go in a shame direction and you buy into that means I'm bad, well, there's always another bottle to help you through that. So we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is try to open up to this place where the painful part of it actually tells you something about what you care about. So, you know, that pain around I wasn't there for my daughter now motivates me to clean myself up and, and walk in the direction of my family and being there for my family. Not because I'm a bad person and this means that, uh, you know, I'm going to have to clean it up before I'm good, but because, you know, there's something deeply meaningful about being there for my kids. And it's worth it, given that. And uh, if you can connect with that, you've got an engine that will pull you through and it uh, the hell that sometimes folks have to walk through uh, when they're walking out of a uh, out of a dick and addiction history. Okay, we got a couple minutes left, so we can't do too much more. But tell me a little bit about mindfulness and uh, practices and exercises for mindfulness. Well, mindfulness, of course, is a thousands of year old uh, kind of tradition, and it's you know psychology is the, are the new kids on the block. I think what we bring to it that uh, some of the spiritual religious leaders in every major religion, by the way, this is not just Buddhism, what we're looking at in contemplative practices in Christianity, Judaism, the Sufis, etc., but is this process of coming into the present moment in a way that is not simply analytical and judgmental and in a more open way, getting in touch with what's present and then being able to allocate our attention if you take just a simple example that Alan Marlat was very interested in as a person who was part of the Vipassana tradition of just learning to follow the breath, you know, part of what happens there is if you're following the, the breath, it's not but a few seconds later that your mind's wandering somewhere else. It's like a wild puppy. That's okay. You bring it back. And then it runs away, and you bring it back. And then it runs away, and you bring it back. And, you know, what you're learning is the skill is when your mind runs away to, for example, you know, I'm a bad person or I'm never going to be able to put back together my family because of all the horrible things I've done or I'm not worthy or whatever it is or an urge or, you know, that you can notice what's there and then come back to what you're up to here in the present and what's of importance to you. And so mindfulness, I think, is this collection of processes of contact with the present moment in a non-judgmental way learning this attentional flexibility to be able to open up to what's in the present and then bring your attention towards what you deeply care about. 
And that's just good for people. And frankly, it's good that the psychotherapy traditions are on to it because it's a part of our cultural wisdom that's in our all of our major spiritual and religious traditions that we really need in the chattery, busy, avoidant uh, modern life that we've created for ourselves. Okay, we're going to close on that. Thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Dr. Stephen Hayes. Thanks for having me. And everyone, join us next week when our guest will be Dr. Sharon Stancliffe from the Harm Reduction Coalition, who will talk about overdose prevention. And we will have Lisa Dietz, who uh, runs the the DBT self-help website for Dialectical Behavioral Therapy Self-Help. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and good night.